Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning. Yeah. Been that bad, huh? Wow, I'm sorry for you. Maybe we just pray, you know. Bless you. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're continuing our series uh, in, uh, in the gospel according to Mark. Uh, we know that Peter was a primary resource in the writing of this gospel. It, we're calling this series Good News for Everyone because it's the good news of Jesus Christ, that God loves us so much that he sent his son, he poured all of them into a human form, and he came to show us how to live. He came to give us life. And, and so we're looking at the life of Jesus. Uh, we're looking at it through the lens of this gospel narrative in Mark. Uh, we're looking at it through his disciples. And what we want to do this morning is connect some of the dots or see how the disciples uh, connect the dots because so often in life we, we have these experiences they feel like kind of independent uh, experiences and too often we don't think about how it all fits together how maybe God is using it all for his purposes uh, and we can see that so clearly when we get to look in hindsight at the life of the disciples and what went on with them and so we're going to continue to look at that this morning uh, out of Mark. And what I'm hoping is I've got a picture up here. I don't know if you remember ever getting a little connect the dot uh, coloring book and, and learning your numbers or your letters uh, by connecting the dots. And you'd see these uh, uh, two kids are mysteriously planting a tree uh, that if you connect the dots will uh, come into focus for you and have a great picture and then you color it in and life is good. Um, and that's what we're gonna try to do this morning. We're gonna try to connect the dots and see where it takes us in not only in the life of Jesus, but in our lives as well. So we're gonna look at several little stories out of the Gospel of Mark. And beginning in Mark, the sixth chapter, in verse 14, it says this, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. So here's a little bit of background. Herod called himself King Herod, but he really wasn't a king. There was a name, it was called Tetrarch, and it was more like a governor. And when Herod the Great, his father died, rather than giving one of the boys uh, the whole kingdom, they divided the kingdom up and they became Tetrarchs. And uh, this is uh, Herod uh, Antipas, his territory happened to be where in the, in the region where Jesus was and, and doing his ministry in, in Jerusalem. And so uh, he is the one here. Now he has this running feud, this running problem with John the Baptist. Here's what we know about Herod Antipas is that his brother Philip uh, had a wife named Herodias and he took his brother Philip's wife because he could, apparently, and she left him and he left his wife. You think things are insane today, just try living in the first century. Uh, all of the same stuff, you know how history repeats itself, all the same 
insanity is going on there. So uh, Herod is married now uh, to Herodias and John the Baptist, the famous John the Baptist who was by the riverside baptizing people, calling them to repentance. Well, he calls out Herod for his sin and and calls him out and says, what you have done is an abomination. It's a sin uh, before God. And apparently Herodias has a bit of a problem with what John the Baptist is saying. Now, Herod's a little bit nervous about John. He kind of respects him. Uh, he kind of believes that if, he's, if he really is a, a prophet and we do something to him, something bad could potentially happen to us, but Herodias won't have anything to do with this. So here we have the scene moves. We've got this conflict. We've got this tension going on, and now Herod has a birthday, and he has a birthday party, and at his birthday party, he asks his stepdaughter, Salome to dance. Now what we know about her is that she's probably somewhere between 14 and 17 years old. She's a teenager. Uh, She comes to Herod's party and all of his buddies, all of his cohorts, uh, they're all reclining on the cushions and she dances and apparently it pleases Herod and he makes this bold statement in front of everyone that I will give you up to half of my kingdom, ask for anything that you want and I will do it for you. That he's so pleased uh, with this dance And so uh, she runs to her mom, Herodias, and says, what should I ask for? And her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in jail. She comes back to the party, and she tells Herod in front of this whole group at the party, I want the head of John the Baptist. And he's stuck. What's he do now? He's made this promise Uh, He's made this commitment in front of all of his friends. Uh, He can't afford to lose face. He can't afford to back up. I don't know if you've ever uh, made a rash statement before. I don't know if you've ever said something before that you really, really wish you could take back, but you're kind of stuck with it. Just try looking at Facebook once in a while. You see lots of people that I'm wishing they could take back what they just put on Facebook. Um, But this happened to Herod, and he can't take it back. He's too prideful. He feels like he's too powerful. There's too much to lose. And so he sends his executioner into John the Baptist's cell. They cut off John the Baptist's head and deliver it to Salome on a platter. And she takes it to her mom. And so we've got this scene that Herod has just had John the Baptist executed. Now, prior to this, Jesus had sent his disciples out, and he said, I want you to go out and preach, and I, and I want you to pray for people, and I want you to t- proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And, and so he had sent his disciples out. While they're out, all of this happens with Herod uh, in the beheading of John the Baptist. And uh, Jesus then brings the disciples back together. They begin to tell him what happened. We pick up the story in verse 30. Um, in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 30, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. As many were coming and going and they had no leisure to even eat. So here's the scene. They all come back to Jesus. There are so many people that want to be around Jesus. There are so many people that are crowding wherever he goes. They just want to be there. They want to be close to him. They want to see what's happened. Maybe they're curiosity seekers. Maybe they're in, in desperate need. But the disciples come back and Jesus realizes that we need to pull aside. They need some rest. Uh, they need some uh, time to process 
all that's happened because there is no way it's gonna happen here. So he begins to pull his disciples uh, away. Now, I think this is really interesting because uh, you know, I, uh, when I was in seminary, I had a, one of my favorite professors wrote a book called Adrenaline and Stress. And part of the thesis of this book was that good stress will kill you just as fast as bad stress. That, that he was making this point that, that there's good stress and bad stress, and good stress can be a promotion, it can be having a child, it can be moving, it can be all kinds of things, and, and it can be things that you're looking forward to, but when you start adding up all of the changes that happen in your life and you start putting all of those things together, that good stress can be just as damaging to your heart and your mind and your body uh, as bad stress, and, and so he, he shared this with us, and I, I thought it was pretty profound, and as I thought about the disciples and sometimes we want to look at the disciples and say why don't they get it why don't why don't they connect the dots why don't they understand all that that Jesus is doing and and then think about this Uh, think about Matthew Matthew's a tax collector sometimes called Levi in the New Testament he's a tax collector which means that he was cheating his own people that he was an outcast among his own people he was hated uh, by them but he was really a rich guy Uh, he's still Jewish he still has this desire to be with his people but he is considered uh, a traitor he's considered an outcast he's hated by by these people and Jesus comes one day and says hey I want you to be my follower and he leaves everything to follow Jesus all of a sudden he goes from an outcast he goes from somebody his people don't trust and don't hate and now he's following Jesus and what do they do do they start trusting him now I don't know I think it was pretty hard for them so Matthew finds himself with all of this change in this weird place all of these things are happening to him and he's trying to sort them out and then how about this how about if you're a fisherman you're Peter James uh, John, Andrew, and you spent your whole life fishing. In fact, you're, it's generational business that your grandfather was a fisherman, your father was a fisherman, you're a fisherman. It's all you've ever known. It's all you've ever done. You're probably illiterate, but you really know how to fish. And what you've done your whole life is that you go out at night, you cast your nets, uh, you fish, you come in in the morning, you mend your nets, you clean your nets, you go to bed, you sleep during the day, and then you start all over again. They're not killing them. They're just having fun, okay? <laughs> Seriously. Well, they might be. No. And you do that over and over again, day after day. That's what you know. That's what you do. You're a fisherman. And then Jesus comes along and he says, I want you to be my follower. I want you to go with me. And, and so they leave their business, the family business. They leave their families. They leave the nets. They leave all of this to follow Jesus. There's nothing in their lives that had prepared them for it. There's nothing in their lives that had, had instructed them. This is what it's going to be like. Here's some of the things that are going to happen. Here's what you should expect to happen. All of this is brand new. All of this is spectacular. But it's all change. It's all stress. It's all happening around them. And they're trying to sort it out. They're trying to figure figure it out as they go. We have 2,000 years of history. We have scripture. We have all of these things to kind of read it and figure it out. And then we still don't get it in our own lives, do we? We still forget when things happen in our lives, when, when experiences happen in our lives, when challenges happen in our lives. We, we, we still forget. We still don't always get it. Well, you can imagine how difficult it was, the, the level of change, the level of stress that, that is going on with the disciples. Jesus sees that, and his compassion, his love for them, he's going to pull them away. But what happens in the story is that people keep coming, and people find them, 
And so uh, he says, he, he says, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. And now many saw them going and, and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away. Uh, to go to the surrounding, excuse me, to go to the surrounding areas so that they, countryside and villages, so they can buy themselves something to eat. Now, I love this part of the story because Jesus sees all of these people. He sees this crowd of people and he's not irritated. He's trying to take his disciples to a, a quiet place, but this crowd of people finds him and he's not angry at him. He's not annoyed at him. It says he feels compassion for them. He feels bad for him. The compassion in the New Testament is a really strong word. It, 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 it has, in the, in the Greek, it has the idea of coming from the bowels. It's something that's so intense. It's something that's so significant that it starts down low uh, in your gut and it works its way up. And it's the kind of, it's not sympathy. You can feel sorry for somebody. Compassion calls you to action. Compassion, real compassion says, I have to do something about this. Jesus felt compassion for all of these people. And why did he feel compassion? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's great Bible language for they, had, they were leaderless. They had nobody to lead them. They were wandering. They were adrift on their own with, with nobody to lead them. And, and what I find ironic is that just prior to this, we read this story uh, about Herod uh, who wanted to be called king. He wanted to be called leader. He, he wanted to be the big boss. He wanted to have that title king in front of his name. And so he made everybody call him that even though he really wasn't a king, but it was about position for him. It was about having that kind of power. So he positions himself like that. But in reality, when Jesus looked at that crowd of people, he found there was nobody worth following. They had no one to follow. They were coming to him in droves because he had the power to change. He had influence. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've learned uh, over the years in my life is that position means nothing if you don't have influence. You can have all the kind of position and you can have power to change people's lives, but if you don't have real influence, if you're not a person of influence uh, and how we influence matters, but if you're not a person of influence, no, nobody's gonna follow you. People were flocking to Jesus. He had influence. Herod thought he had all the power, but he didn't really. It was sort of a fake. It was kind of a sham. And Herod kept uh, uh, pushing for this power. In fact, his wife Herodias, Herodias um, kept challenging him, pushing him to go to Caesar and get that title of king. <laughs> it finally irritated Caesar so much uh, that he had Herod and Herodias exiled to Spain, to a region called Gaul, and that's where they spent the rest of their lives in exile and in poverty and alone because his ambition was so overwhelming that it finally caught up with him. And Jesus comes in and he feels compassion for these people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So the disciples look out over this huge crowd. What we know, and, and it's interesting because this particular story is in all four of the Gospels. So it must be really important for us. Uh, the, the disciples see this huge crowd of people. We know there were 5,000 men, roughly, and then, they, you, then you add the women and the children to that because in the first century, that's how you counted. Sorry, everybody. But... Um, 
but they counted, they were at least 5,000 men and then the women and children, so we don't know exactly, but there were a lot of people there and the disciples looked at this crowd and said, there, uh, they need to be released. We need to send them out so they can go to the towns and villages. They can find some place to, to get something to eat because we don't want to be responsible for this mess if all of these people are hungry and they're tired and they get, you know, they get grumpy and all of that goes along with that. And so uh, they tell Jesus, we need to send them away. <laughs> Well, Jesus had another idea. I, I love this because uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus isn't the, the least bit surprised by what's going on. In verse 37, it says this, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> you guys do something. I love that. And, and they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and, and give it to them to eat? A denarii, uh, that's plural for denarius, and denarius was about $20 an hour. Well, it was, about, it was, it was uh, workman's wages for one day. And so when they talk about, you know, uh, 200 denarii, that's a lot, a lot of money for them, more money than any of them had ever seen. And so they said, we, we couldn't do that if we had 200 denarii worth of bread to give them something to eat. In verse 38, Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they found out and they said, five loaves of bread and two fish. That's how much food we have. So in one of the other gospels, we get a little bit more of the information that Andrew shows up and he tells Jesus, I found this little guy with his lunchbox and he's got five loaves of bread and a couple of fish and, and that's all we've been able to come up with. Uh, nobody else in this group of 5,000 plus people thought ahead enough to bring lunch, you know, to bring dinner, except for this little guy's mom packed his lunchbox. Here he is. Uh, we've got his food and now what do we do with it? And, and Jesus said, well, bring it to me. Uh, it would have been fun to be the little guy, wouldn't it, in that story? A little scary too. And uh, and. And uh, then verse 39, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and by fifties, the grass is green. The grass is green. He sits them down on green grass. Now that, it's a really interesting that Mark would decide to throw in that little uh, bit of information. Who cares if the grass is green, really? Uh, but but here's, here's the picture that he's building for us, is that there's a, there's a window of time in that part of the world where they have green grass. They don't have it in the winter. Uh, when the summer starts coming, it's Phoenix. You know, they, everything withers and dies. It gets hot, the hot winds blow through. And, and so you've got this little window of time that you actually have green grass. And it just happens that it's the time, it's the season of the year that's leading up to the Passover. So we get a marker here that they have green grass so that we know that Passover season is right around the corner. And Mark wants us to understand that. He wants us to know that. So he adds uh, that little tidbit in for us. And then he seats them in 50s and 100s. Jesus organizes them. He tells them, and this is what reminds me that Jesus isn't surprised by this, that Jesus knows what's about to happen, that, that he understands this and he is organizing this so that, so that when they all sit down, uh, there's an organized way to take care of them. And then the story tells us that Jesus looks up to heaven and he blesses the five loaves and the two fish and then he begins to divide that food and he feeds everybody in the crowd and I love what the gospels say, they all ate until they were satisfied. Now, that means different things to different people, right? That's a lot of food for some people to feel satisfied. Everybody ate until they were satisfied. And then the story ends that there were 12 baskets of leftovers. 
12 baskets left over that the disciples collected. Nothing was wasted. Nothing was just, you know, thrown, thrown away. Nothing was left. Uh, they didn't litter the mountainside with, you know, uneaten bread and fish and all of that. But, uh, but you know, and we don't know exactly why Jesus told them to do that except clean up after yourself. And, and, uh, uh, and we also know that the disciples probably had a snack that night and maybe had it for lunch the next day, you know, uh, leftovers from the mountain. That was a pretty good idea. But here's what we do know that Jesus provided in abundance and the disciples were part of that experience. The disciples were there and the story tells us that they were astounded. They were amazed at what Jesus had done. They were overwhelmed uh, with the goodness of Jesus. And so the changes keep taking place in their lives. Jesus, they see his compassion for these people. They see his power. You know, what's really fascinating to me about this story is that this isn't just Jesus doing a magic trick and and making more bread and making more fish, but this is new creation. Jesus says, I created the earth. I created the fish in the sea. I I created all the ingredients to, to make that bread, and I can create more and I'm gonna feed all of you. There's enough for everybody. Sometimes we live our lives thinking that I better get mine now uh, because there's not enough to go around. And Jesus is saying, no, in my kingdom, there's always enough for everyone. I am the Lord of abundance. Uh, I am the Lord of blessing. I always have enough for everyone. And there was enough for everyone that day and the disciples saw it happening. But remember, Good stress will kill you as fast as bad stress. I went to this professor one, t- one day, uh, one time, and this, wrote the book, Adrenaline and Stress, and I set up this appointment with him, and I, I went in and told him I was, we were living in L.A. County, and if you've ever been to L.A., you can appreciate this. If I had a 7 a.m. meeting, sometimes I'd have to leave at 5 to make sure I was on time uh, to get there. I did a small group with some guys at 6 o'clock once a week for 17 years, and I would always have to leave around 4.30 to make sure I got to our our little group on time. Uh, And then you had to figure out, it wasn't about just how far you was going, it was trying to guess the traffic patterns and and pick the right freeway or the right service streets and all of that. And, And so I just found myself on the road Uh, all the time. We lived there 17 years, and I bet I spent three or four of those years in my car. But, but, so I went to my professor, and I told him I was, how tired I was, and I was exhausted, and and just felt worried about burning out, and all that was going on in my life, and I was telling him my sad story. I was whining, maybe just a little bit. You know, uh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And he listens to me, and and, uh, and then he says, okay, I, I, got a, I got an idea for you. I said, oh, good. This is what I came for. I need a good idea. And he said, Larry, I want you to go home tonight, and, and I want you to go to bed early. I want you to sleep for eight hours. And, and then the next night, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to sleep for eight hours. I want you to do that for a whole week, sleep eight hours every night, and then come back and see me. And I was thinking, seriously, that's, that's all you got? I, went, I mean, I came here for some help. I think I'm in trouble. I, ne- I need some help here, and you're just telling me to go home and sleep for eight hours, and so I, I kind of was, all right, you know, and I, I went home, and, and, and I tried to sleep eight hours that night, and, and then I did that for a whole week, and, and I went back to see him the next week, and, and I said, it's a miracle. I feel better. 
I needed some rest. I, I needed some sleep. I needed to create some space in my life, and I have a different perspective now. I can look at this a little different. Jesus, in his compassion for his disciples, is trying to help create margin for them. He's trying to help them so they can get perspective, so they have a little bit clearer head to connect the dots in their lives, and, and, and that's what he's doing. But the disciples, they don't, they don't get it yet. So here's verse 45. It says this. And immediately he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. And when he dismissed the crowd, uh, while he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Isn't this fascinating? Here's Jesus the Christ, uh, Jesus who never sinned, Jesus who is the Son of God who has come down from heaven uh, to to forgive us of our sins, to show us how to live our lives, to die on a cross, to be risen again, all of those things. And Jesus knows he needs time to go on a mountain by himself to talk to his Father. Now I gotta think about this because if Jesus decided he needed to do that, maybe I need to do that sometimes. Just maybe. I don't know, unless maybe you're like more spiritual than Jesus was. That's entirely possible. You're gonna have to decide for yourself. I'm not. I'm pretty sure. But Jesus went to spend some time with his father. Well, it says that, uh, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, the disciples in the boat. I love this, the way he phrases this. He, they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and it was about the fourth watch of the night, and he came to them walking on the sea. So here's this picture. Jesus puts his disciples in the boat. It's another boat story. It's another storm story. He puts his disciples in a boat. They're rowing out across the water. The, a storm, another storm comes up. The waves are huge. They're splashing over the boat. And the disciples are rowing painfully trying to get there. And so here's, here's the thing. There are two kinds of pain that I sort of picture in this story. One is that, that the water's really choppy and it just takes every ounce of strength that you have to get across, to, to row this thing. The other kind of painful that I think of is that they had somebody like me in the boat with them who's not good at that stuff. And so you've got fishermen in the boat and they're used to rowing and they're used to all of this and they're pulling as hard as they can. And then you've got Matthew a tax collector, and it's been 20 years since he's been in a boat. It's been a long time since he's rowed anything, and it's painful to watch him try to row while they're in these heavy waters, and I'm sure that Peter uh, and Andrew and James and John are just a little bit, you know, a, a little bit mad sometimes because Matthew, he's trying to row, but he's splashing water on them. He's turning them in the wrong direction. He really doesn't know how to do it. And then you've got Simon the zealot who just operates out of anger all the time anyway, and he's making it worse. And so you've got these fishermen, but in the boat with them, you've got people who don't know how to row, who haven't been in a storm like this, and they're kind of all working against each other, and Jesus looks at it, and he, it's painful. It looks painful to him. And so the account says that Jesus decides to go to him and he goes walking on the water. And when he saw, uh, and he meant to pass by, it says, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. 
Now, please don't just look at, oh, the disciples, they messed it up again. They don't get it. They don't. No, look, if I'm on the water and I see somebody walking on the water, I'm going to be terrified, right? I mean, who wouldn't be terrified? They, they didn't see this on a regular basis. They weren't used to people walking on the water. They'd just seen Jesus feed a bunch of people. They had seen Jesus touch a leper. They've seen all these amazing things. Now, somebody's walking on the water, and it says they were terrified. They'd never seen anything like it before. They still weren't connecting the dots completely. But it says immediately, Jesus spoke to them, and he said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the winds ceased, and they were utterly astounded. I'm going to stop there for a quick second. They were utterly astounded. Jesus gets into the boat. They get to the place that they're supposed to be. The disciples look at this, and once again, they're utterly astounded. They've seen so many things now. They've heard so much. There's been so much change in their life. There's been so many things going on. It's all amazing. They're astounded every time, but they're not quite sure, what do we do with all of this? What do we do with everything that we're seeing? What do we do with everything that we're experiencing? How do we put all of this together? And they're a little bit overwhelmed. This word astounded, uh, in the Greek is to pull aside, to pull out. So everything that they known, uh, everything that they understood about nature and about life has been pulled from them. They've been pulled out of their life, and it's overwhelming for them as they look at it, and they're trying to connect the dots. They're trying to see what Jesus is doing, but here's what we understand as we look, that he is the Christ, and he is on a mission. He is doing something in their lives. He's doing something significant for them. He's taking them through another storm. He put them in the boat. He told them to go. They obeyed Jesus, and now they find themselves in a difficult situation. Jesus shows up, and they're astounded by it. And then listen to this last verse. And they did not understand, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, interesting. They didn't understand the, the whole idea of the loaves and the fish yet. They didn't, hadn't put together all the things that, that Jesus done. Uh, they hadn't connected the dots yet. And it says, but in their hearts were hardened. You know, this is a really tough sentence in, in the New Testament. What does it mean when our hearts uh, are hardened? It has, a, it has a lot of connotations to it, but it, it can mean that our hearts have gotten calloused. And in our hearts, we don't feel the same anymore. We don't experience things the same anymore. It could be that our hearts have simply gotten dull, that somehow we have just sort of been coasting and, and moving along and we haven't been paying attention. And, and before we know it, we're, our hearts are far from the Lord and our minds are far from the Lord and we don't think about how he might be working anymore. Um, it could be that we're angry because things aren't going the way that we expected them to go. The disciples are thinking, come on, what, what's gonna happen? next. I mean, we have found ourselves next to lepers and, and blind men, and we have seen ourselves feeding 5,000, Jesus feeding 5,000. We thought it was impossible. We've been through a couple of storms on the water. Now, what's going to happen next? Jesus, we thought this was about conquering. We thought this was about establishing a kingdom. We thought this was about being heroes and getting famous, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves constantly in the middle of trouble, in the middle of storms, constantly frightened. This isn't the way that we thought it was supposed to be, and, and, and in that fright, in that they become hard in their hearts. I don't want to see anymore. I don't want to hear anymore. Whatever reason it was, it happened to them. And here's the, here's the big idea for us this morning. The thing I want you to really consider 
is how our hearts get hardened. How that happens in, in our lives because it's really easy for us. It's really easy for us to experience storms in our lives, to experience really difficult things in our lives and to, to say, God, where are you? Why haven't you shown up? Why haven't you done something in, in my life? It, it, it's, or it's easy for us to get even a little bit lazy and things are going pretty good right now and, and we're feeling pretty good about things and we can kind of make this work on our own and, and we can kind of, we're just kind of floating. We're not really focused in on what Christ is doing in our lives and, and what he's about, but, but we're, we're just kind of, okay, we're taking a break and, and before we know it, our hearts are dull and our mind's not paying attention and, and we're not really focused on who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world. There's a lot of ways that, that our hearts will get hardened because things will happen in our lives. You know, I have this overdeveloped sense of responsibility. I have this idea that I'm supposed to be responsible for everybody, everything, and, and, and so when things happen that are um, out, of, out of control for me, it, it's really difficult to sort of figure out, uh, process, w- what is this, what, what do I do with this? I, I've, I've let people down, I, I've disappointed, and, and here's what I've discovered in my life, that, that the Lord uses those things. I have a choice, that when, when a storm comes in my life, or when I sense, when I feel like a failure in my life, that's a choice in my life that I can either let my heart grow hard, God, why did you let this happen? Why did you do this? or I can allow this event to turn my heart toward Jesus. I have to make that decision. And you have to make that decision. We can either let it be something that makes our heart hardened, or we can allow it to be something that turns our heart toward Jesus. You know, when, it, when you have this sense of responsibility, here's how I, how I look at it, that, that I feel so responsible and loyal that, that sometimes the Lord just has to look at my life and circumstances and he has to just roll a hand grenade in the room and blow everything up to get me to move on, to get me to move where he wants me to be. Uh, that I can look at a storm as something that's happened to me and it's not fair or I can look at a storm and say, okay, Lord, you're moving me someplace. Where are we going? I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna follow you and I have to make that decision all the time in my life, and you have to make that decision all the time in your life. What does it look like? What does having a hard heart look like for you? What's that mean in your life? Uh, some years ago, I had a, uh, got a call from a lady, and she said, can you come over? I'm gonna confront my husband on some stuff that he's done, and so I went over, and, and uh, he had uh, just blown up his marriage and his family and I met, the three of us met, and she, it was just, it was horrible. So painful to sit in on this. And then I met with two of his three kids and, and him while they confronted him with what had happened, and, and he just sat stone-faced. And it was horrible, again, to, I, I told him at one point I, that I would crawl over glass to make this right with my kids. I would do anything to make this right with my kids. And he just sat there. And his attitude was, you know what, come on. Just, everybody needs to just get over it. And let's kind of move on. And, and he, he allowed his heart to get really hard. And, and I knew how hard it was when, when later I heard from people that he had, you know, after dealing with me, he had said, said well, my Christian friends just want to judge me. 
know, that's kind of how they respond to stuff. And I said to them, look, you know, later when I had a chance to, look, I'm, I'm not the one that blew up my family. I'm not the one that did the things that you did. Um, you're responsible for those things. So I'm, I'm not being judgmental. I'm just, I'm just calling you out on what you've done and what your life looks like. And he just, his heart was hard. He didn't change to this day, hasn't changed. We have that kind of hardened heart, and then we have a heart that most of us experience from time to time where we just get lazy in our faith, and we get dull to the spirits talking to us, and we get complacent about where we are, and and it's never a big blow-up. It's always a slow leak in our life with Christ, right? It's always just that slow process of being, uh, not being attentive to our walk with Christ, not being attentive to our faith, not paying attention to those little tugs or, or those things that are going on in our lives. And, and before we know it, our heart is dull. Our heart's not sensitive to the Lord. And, and he has an antidote for that. If we begin to connect the dots in our lives and remind ourselves that who Jesus is and remind ourselves that when we go through storms, we have a choice. We can allow it to harden our heart or we can allow uh, uh, God to use that to draw us to him. It can point us toward Jesus. Here's what Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27 say. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That Jesus says that God promises us that he'll take that heart of stone, however it's developed, however our hearts gotten hardened, and he'll remove that heart of stone and he will restore us to a heart of flesh, a heart that's pointed toward him. But we have to decide that's what our lives are gonna be. We have to decide where our focus is gonna be. We have to decide how we're gonna respond to all the things because we will experience storms. We will have storms in our lives, but the question is how do we respond to those storms? Have we connected the dots in our lives, how God has moved, how God has called us, how God has challenged us? Have we considered why storms come? Have we considered how he wants to use them? Have we looked at our lives lately and, and did a real honest evaluation? Where, where has my heart gotten hardened toward the Lord, toward Jesus? And asked him to remove that heart of stone, asked him to take that away, to point us back to him, to give us a heart of flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the examples that you've given us in the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the storms that you bring into our lives that give us the opportunity to refocus on you, to look for you in the middle of our trouble, to look for you in in the middle of our trials, in the middle of our, our experiences, Lord, that we can look for you, that you are always faithful, that you always are there. And so, Lord, we want to acknowledge that this morning. And, and Lord, where our hearts have gotten hardened, we ask that you forgive us. We ask that you would change us. We ask, Lord, that you would point our hearts and our minds to you. Uh, Lord, we ask that in the name of Jesus. And we give you all of the thanks and all of the praise. In the name of Jesus, amen. In just a moment, 
we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thanks, you guys. We have, uh, as always, prayer partners in the corner there. They'd love to pray with you and for you, so uh, I would encourage you to stop by. They're, uh, they're really good at it, so take advantage of that. And then our prayer table, you can write your prayer requests down, and uh, we would uh, love to be praying for you. And we pray for good stress as well as bad stress in our prayer times, all right? So uh, if anybody here, say, like, is going to medical school soon, we'll pray for you, all right? Um, but uh, anything, anything that you have going, please, uh, it's a privilege to pray with you uh, and for you. So take advantage of that. And my prayer is simply that the Lord would give us an opportunity to do a little inventory of our heart. And that we might be able to discern just a little bit of where my heart has gotten hard, uh, where God wants to point me back to Jesus, uh, how he wants to use the storm. If you're in a storm right now in your life, how he wants to use that to turn your heart toward Christ. Maybe you just realize that you've been floating for a while and, and you've just kind of gotten numb to life and the Lord and all of that and how he wants to get your attention again. So whatever it is that that we would turn our eyes toward Jesus uh, and turn our hearts toward him and trust him uh, with the results um, in our lives. So I'll be praying for you this week for that. You can pray for me. And um, I want you to know that I love you. Uh, Have a great day. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.